Dispatches. This is your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. Great show today. I have Corey Shockey on the line. She is currently a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, and she served in various foreign policy positions in the first Bush administration, the Clinton administration, the second Bush administration, and then was a foreign policy advisor to the McCain-Palin campaign. As you may surmise from her resume, she is a Republican and has offered some thoughtful criticisms of the Obama administration's foreign policy, which we get into at the top of the conversation. Then we pivot and talk about Corey's fascinating career and some of her really remarkable research interests. So if you read you and Dispatch, listen to this podcast, follow me on Twitter, you know that I certainly fall on the liberal internationalist side of the foreign policy debate, but it was still nonetheless very interesting to learn from and mix it up a little bit with Corey Shockey. So here she is, Corey Shockey of the Hoover Institution. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I would characterize the administration's policy as um, ardently hoping that the world will see America's perspective as a as a basis for common action, and I think that has worked out less well than they had hoped. Um, just to take the example in particular of the United Nations, the the Obama administration uh, intended to run American foreign policies through the United Nations, believed. And to its credit, believed that American power is most um, is strongest and most resilient when it is used to build institutions and common norms of behavior. I think that is such a noble principle, and their frustration in trying to make the United Nations be the central clearinghouse where we do our international. Uh, negotiations and ensure the international legitimacy of our actions, I think runs aground with the with the frustration that comes when other countries actually don't see a common interest in in acting with the United Nations through the UN. And so the Obama administration keeps running aground on that discontinuity, on we- the fact that um, you know, when you're the United States and the Russians and Chinese will not give you the support for activity that you're seeking in the United Nations. If the United Nations is really the center of your foreign policy, you actually have to not do what you were attempting. Would and you... I think mm-hmm. they found themselves frustrated by that. Well, would you say that that general vision, though, um, you know, 
kind of succeeded at least until Syria. I mean, you can take the the Libya example, which is a manifestation, I think, of the um, idealism that you that you outlined, which is you know the U.S. you know famously led from behind, but successfully you know uh, negotiated a strategy at the United Nations for multilateral action against Gaddafi. Um, but yeah. then, but so it sort of worked up until then. Uh, but then when it hit sort of the post-Libya era and, and when it sort of ran aground of Russian concerns in Syria is when that sort of started to fall apart a little bit. I think that's a terrific question, but I, it looks slightly different to me than it looks to you. I think the Obama administration did a terrific job of working through the United Nations on sanctions on Iran. I think the the breadth and depth of sanctions that they got through the United Nations in uh, 2010 is an enormous achievement, and they made important compromises in order to achieve it, not just with the Russians and Chinese, but the compromises were also with Europeans. That is, that it looks to me like the basic bargain is the United States gave up its support for regime change in Tehran, in return for Europeans assisting us in constraining the behavior of the existing regime. And that seems to me as important a deal as the bargains we made with the Russians and Chinese. But I don't, and I do agree with you that Libya is an important turning point. Because, but the Russians in particular, and others, other states as well, felt betrayed by our interpretation and the Europeans' interpretation of the Security Council resolutions on Libya. Mm -hmm. So I agree that it closed down the prospect for serious bargaining and agreement in the United Nations context subsequent to Libya. But I also think there were a number of things that American policy avoided discussing at the United Nations because we were not in the same place that most other countries are. Uh, like what would that be? Well, American counterterrorism policies, I think. And I think initially the Obama administration had hoped that, there were, that they could build strong norms and strong institutional cooperation on, on anti-terrorism policies. And were because of the choices that the Obama administration made, which are largely um, continuity of Bush administration counterterrorism policies. They could not get support from the government of Pakistan for other governments in a UN context for things that they wanted to do. And so as a result, handled those either bilaterally or multilaterally outside the UN context. I think um, maybe to push back on that a little, we're seeing something of, of a change right now. I mean, so um, we're speaking, we're recording this in November. Uh, in September, uh, the Security Council with you know President Obama as head of the Security Council passed um, that sort of sweeping resolution that strengthened uh, sort of international counterterrorism cooperation. But one thing that was striking to me, at least, about that um, resolution was its focus on uh, what they call in the UN system countering violent extremism, uh, which for, for those out there are not familiar, this is sort of the idea that you're not just going to you know, defeat the terrorists and kill the terrorists with your bombs and your guns, but you're also going to try to you know, 
soak up the ideological winds from them, do things to prevent, you know, mostly young men from falling into the trap and being attracted to terrorist ideologies. And this is something I think, you know, the softer side, uh, this is sort of the softer side of, of counterterrorism. It's something that I think was only recently been embraced by the United States and most I think, um, demonstrably embraced by this uh, most recent Security Council meeting that uh, President Obama chaired. Wow. Um, That looks different to me. When I was in the State Department policy planning staff, the Bush administration actually had a big effort on countering violent extremism, in particularly Mm -hmm. jihadist recruiting that Jared Cohen, who's now the head of Google's Ideas and Action Tank, Mm -hmm. ran in the State Department. So I don't think it's new. I do think it's important. But again, the problem with the with the Security Council resolution is what groups and individuals does that encompass? I think we're seeing a lot of the friction with that right now in the fight against the Islamic State in Syria and in Iraq, where an acknowledged terrorist group, the PKK, is willing to send fighters to do something that the United States, Turkey, and Iraq very much want to have done. But are we really going to um, make that deal? Mm-hmm. So I think the PKK, just for those who don't know, is the Kurdish uh, militant group, the, the Kurdish militia. Yeah, that the United States government has on our terrorist list, that the Turkish government has been fighting for 35 years. So I I think it's not that much of an achievement to get a generalized agreement on that. I think it's a very difficult thing to build consensus on who counts and who doesn't. I think it's going to be a very hard discussion with Pakistan, very hard discussion with a number of countries where the... The problem will not look the same to us as it looks to them. Uh, and I guess, so what would you advise then? So how would you, um, you know, uh, how would you suggest that the Obama administration, you know, come to terms with these these sort of kind of opposing ideals and, and competing priorities that you just described? A terrific question. You know, I probably um, focused too narrowly in my initial comments on the ways that their policy uh, and its principles get manifested in the United Nations. I think more broadly, the administration um, considers itself to have a very principled foreign policy, but I think very often those principles aren't as evident to other countries who are trying to figure out whether to support us and coordinate with us or or remain aloof from what we are trying to do. And I, I think for American governments, it's always a challenge to square our principles and our interests, our values and our interests, if you will. I'm right now writing a book on American foreign policy in the 19th century, and it's shocking how illiberal a democracy the United States of America is for most of the 19th century. What's a good example of that? That sounds fascinating in a subject I know nothing about. So this is, this is great. I look forward to reading this book. What, what's a good illiberal story? Well, the Indian Wars, for example. Yeah. You know, it's not just... So that would be considered foreign policy, right? Um, uh, still, still at that time? Well, 
we are expanding the territory of what will constitute our country. Uh, the Mexican War, I think, certainly qualifies. Ulysses Grant called it um, the most unjust military action ever undertaken by a, a strong country against a weak one. Um, and in a number of instances, our colonization of the Philippines after the Spanish-American War, I think in the 19th century, Americans, you know, are a boisterous democracy and very much focused on the power of majority rule. And it's not until well in the 20th century that we really perfect our democracy with the protection of minority rights. So what inspired you to write uh, about the 19th century U.S. foreign policy? (laughs) I was uh, curious with all of the discussion about the rise of China and what that means for the United States as the strongest power in the international order. I was curious about the last time a disruptive power that was perceived as a threat to the existing order crashed onto the international scene. And of course, that country was the United States. And the transition from British to American hegemony that occurs across the 19th and 20th centuries is the only peaceful transition of power between the strongest states in the international order. So I was curious about how that came about, what the choices the United States made and the choices Britain made as water was finding its new level. That is that. That's fascinating. With the idea being that at some point, if present trends continue, China will po- be poised to sort of be the global hegemon. And how could we manage that transition peacefully? Yes. And how concerned should we be about China's rise? Are there things that Britain did well that we should emulate? Are there are are there specific circumstances to the fact that the United States was a democracy and Britain becoming much more democratic? And in fact, the entire international order becoming much more democratic in that transition period. Does it matter that these states share political values in a way that China and the United States don't? Do you have any like initial um, conclusions that you've drawn on that <laughs> on that on that question that you just that you just posed? Yeah, the the two biggest things that I take away from um, looking at America as a rising power is how enormously we are advantaged by our values being the aspiration of others in the international order. Um, American power is much easier and less costly to sustain in the international order because of the magnetism of our ideology. And I think the Chinese don't have that advantage, and that will make both their acquisition of international power and their ability to sustain it much more difficult and much more costly than it has been for the United States. And the second thing I take from it is just how much America being an immigrant country has actually constrained the choices of other powers in the international order. That's an advantage China also does not have. Let me just give you a quick example. Yeah, yeah, please. The British... British Prime Minister Palmerston during the American Civil War was sorely tempted to recognize the Confederacy, which may have actually produced a different outcome in the war between the states. He was constrained 
by two things. One, that he believed allying himself with the Confederacy would make it, would increase pressure for expanding the franchise, expanding democracy and the number of people who were who were deemed able to vote in Britain because uh, the British, the growing urbanized, industrialized British middle classes allied with the North, not the South. And so if the government made a different choice than its broad, unvoting middle classes made, uh, Palmerston viewed that as something that would make, have domestic repercussions in the structure of governance in Britain. And the second thing that really mattered that he was worried about was that by 1860, the patterns of immigration from Britain to the United States were predominantly from Ireland and Scotland to the industrialized North. And he believed if Britain allied with the South, the familial ties would actually make it much more difficult for Britain to control Ireland and Scotland. So it's the flip side as the argument for Japanese internment in World War II, where people had argued that their connections with their ancestral homeland were a risk to the United States. What you see in 1861 to 63 is the British government fearful that familial connections are actually a weakness for Britain, not a weakness for the United States. Oh, that's so funny because you, you know you hear the argument. I guess, I guess, crystallized by Jim Webb and Born Fighting, how the Scotch-Irish um, immigration to the American South, um, you know, manifested itself in like pugilistic American foreign policy. Uh, <laughs> so that's 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 fascinating. Um, so. Uh, this, I, I would, I'm so looking forward to reading this book. It's always a dangerous question to ask book authors, but do you have an expected publication date? <laughs> I am hoping that it will be out this time next year. All right, excellent. Um, I'm in the middle of the Venezuelan debt crisis of 1902 at the moment. Oh, gosh, that sounds amazing. <laughs> um, so uh, how, where are you from? Uh, this, this is this, I would love to just trace um, your story from how you got to where you were born to how you got to writing this, this newest book that we just talked about. Sure. So I grew up in Sonoma, California, a wonderful little town in the wine country that's dairies and vineyards and a chief of police who knows every teenager's name. Sounds uh, idyllic. Um, what? So what? Uh, what were your parents up to uh, at the time? I had the great good fortune that my mom was a stay-at-home mom, so she gave her intelligence and her humor and her talent and her energy to raising her children. My dad was an airline pilot, um, and his deal with me my whole life was he would take me any place in the world I wanted to go if I would be his tour guide. Ah, so, so what I was the first with... place? Uh, let's see. I am. I cannot actually remember the answer. Probably London, but Rome and Tokyo wouldn't have been far behind. Mm-hmm. Is is there like one uh, place that you chose? Like, why did you choose these places? Like, what what fascinated you about them? Uh, you know, because I had read about them in books. You can't read Dickens and not love London. <laughs> <laughs> and I um, had read a lot about the Roman Empire, and so loved the way that modern Rome. You can still see ancient Rome if you walk around modern Rome. And so that made it an especially magical place to travel to. Did you have any uh, siblings? 
Yeah, I'm a middle child. I have an older brother and a younger sister. My brother uh, spent a career in the Air Force and now uh, spends his time running um, training programs, vocational training programs that fill the gap that uh, that junior colleges used to fill in the California educational system. It's a really wonderful thing. And my sister's the actual talent in the Shockey family. She is um, a communications expert. Oh, nice. Um, and worked in the Obama White House. Okay, so so you uh, challenged each other uh, in the 2008 elections, I would presume. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, how, how, how are those meetings and those uh, family gatherings? You know, actually really easy, because we were raised by parents who believe people of good faith can have different views, even on very important questions, and have a responsibility to understand that you can both be right. I feel like you've been asked this question before. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it does come up very often, and my sister and I both give the same answer. Yeah, yeah. These actually aren't difficult conversations for us. Um, so uh, where did you go to school? I guess, what was your first like formal entry into the world of foreign policy, of U.S. foreign policy? So I went to Stanford as an undergraduate and was a student of Condi Rice's there. When oh. you asked both questions in one fell swoop. Okay. <laughs> Uh, and what, uh, as an as an undergrad, you went there. Um, and what course was she was she teaching at the time? Something I had no interest in: uh, elite selection in the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. But I had designed my own major, and I had to take a course that that a seminar that fit a particular set of characteristics. And this was the one. And, and I, it, I have been garnering advantages from that for the last 30 years. So as, as like a 20-year-old, and uh, so I presume this is probably like the early 1990s or so? Oh, thank you. That's so nice. No, it was the early 1980s. Okay, early 1980s. Um, and so uh, you made this connection with uh, Condoleezza Rice. Um, and how, I guess, did you um, uh, use that connection, or how did that connection manifest itself in, in terms of like getting a job in, in public policy? So she very nicely took an interest in me, and after I graduated, I stayed the year after I graduated from Stanford and worked as her research assistant on a book that she never wrote, but was The Professional Making of Me. It was a book about looking at the military leadership, who gets picked for the military leadership in the Soviet Union and the United States. And so I spent a year reading everything that the military leadership of the United States writes about and comparing and contrasting it to the the fingerprints of professionalism in the Soviet military. And so I knew a little bit about the American military and uh, when I was finishing my graduate work, thanks to Condi, I got a fantastic fellowship from the American Association for the Advancement of Science that takes academics in particular, hard scientists, but but I talked my way into it anyway, that brings academics into government service for a year. And General Powell took me into the Joint Staff in the summer of 1990 as his Europe expert. So can, I, can I just ask about that research project? So um, what was the conclusion? I mean, did, did the United States and Russia have generally similar standards or vastly sort of different standards for how they promote members Very of the military? Very different. It, it was really interesting. So the Soviet military leadership 
either was so corrupt that that what they are publishing has no connection to who they are, or they had a very different selections set of selection criteria. The American military, as of course you know, they write about strategy. They write a lot about leadership. How do you motivate and direct volunteers um, into a fighting force? Um, the Soviet military leadership at that time wrote as though they were the MIT faculty. It was very technical, a lot of engineering questions, a lot of focus on the countering the strategic defense initiative, um, nothing about the nurturing of young men and women into soldiers, sailors, airmen, and marines. Mm -hmm. So just very like focused on, on sort of the hard sciences and, and, and focused yeah. on the issues as opposed to the individuals. That's, that's fascinating. Um, so and I don't know enough to know whether they, whether, you know, their technical training was sufficient to that path or whether, uh, and so, so it was, you know, their natural subject matter. But if it's their natural subject matter, it doesn't leave much room for the kind of leadership and motivation and tactical and operational focus that consumes the American military elites. Um, and, and you said that that led you to a position in the Joint Military uh, Chiefs of Staff under uh, Colin Powell? Yeah, that's right. In the so summer of 1990, I went to work as literally the lowest level of professional staff in the Joint Staff. <laughs> I was the NATO desk officer in the European division of the strategy shop um, of the Joint Staff and happened to get there just as Germany was unifying and decisions had to be made about whether Germany would remain in NATO when it was unified. The Soviets, as you will recall, were had made that a de had made Germany's neutrality a demand of unification. So negotiating through to a Germany that could stay in NATO, how whether NATO should expand to include new members, all of those kinds of questions were what I had the fun of working on when I was newly professional. Well, so seeing you know being in such a junior position, uh, nonetheless, did you think that you had an effect on any of the big policy questions you just um, described? Like, could you point to a you know, decision that was made and, and say that, you know, you had a hand in it? Yeah, I, I think I, at a very modest level, um, had an effect on a couple of big issues. There were some I had right and there were some I had wrong. Um, and fortunately, most of the ones I had wrong were ones on which I was ineffectual. <laughs> most of the ones I had right are the ones on which I was effectual. What I like conclude what? Well, from that... What I conclude from that is that um, that my judgment was being trained in a way that aligned me with the judgment of the senior people in the organization. You know, the main thing that I learned in the joint staff was mostly what the American military consists of is brilliant teachers, because they live in a world where you can't be successful unless you can make everyone around you successful. And I was the person, I was the outlier, I was the person everybody had to make successful because I didn't have the experience that trained their judgment. Um, and so they pulled me along on a whole lot of issues. Um, Germany's neutrality, I think, I did, I do 
seeing my voice added to the voice of a whole lot of other people. But I had done my PhD dissertation on the Berlin crisis in 1958 and 1961. And a lot of those debates of the late 50s and early 60s were were concerned about Germany drifting away from the West. So that's a subject on which I had very strong views. And what was the, uh, I guess, conclusion on, on uh, of course, Germany, you know, entered, was, became part of NATO, um, but what was the, like, your, your immediate um, conclusion or what, were, what sort of what memos were you sending up the chain? <laughs> well, um, you know, I, I don't think I can actually take any credit for Germany remaining in NATO after. I'll give you credit. That's okay. Um, <laughs> so, how, so how long were you in that post was, at, that at NATO? I was in the joint staff for five years, almost six. Five okay. Years. And then I went to um, work in the in the office of the Secretary of Defense in the Strategy and Policy Shop. And after about a year of that, I was homesick for academic life, mm-hmm. um, and went back to that. So you, I mean, so so you worked in the Clinton administration then um, for for yeah, a period. I was so in, for was, who was. Was that William Cohen was the uh, Secretary of Defense at the time? I got to, the, to OSD just when uh, Les Espen was getting fired. And yes. then there was the interregnum where there were a couple of people they wanted to nominate that didn't work out. And it was, for me, a really interesting lesson in institutions because you could feel the entirety of the Pentagon relax when... Bill Perry became secretary. Bill Perry, that's who it was, okay. And the institution had gotten so tangled up under Les Aspen's leadership. What happened there? What's that, what's sort of the the takeaway from what happened in the life? Because, you know, I I remember reading about it, but I I can't, I don't know the story. Well, again, from the cheap seats in the organization, what it looked like to me was... um, you know, running a large institution requires the leadership to communicate their priorities really effectively and clearly. And in an organization as big as, you know, 2.2 million people, um, the American military and its civilian leadership really need to be clear about what they want to happen. And they also need to demonstrate it in the little ways that make people comfortable that they know what they're doing. Just one example. Secretary Aspen never started a meeting on time. He never ended it on time. Nobody knew what the conclusion was. People couldn't tell where he was trending in his thinking. Bill Perry reversed all of those things. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, people felt like the institution was clear and predictable, and they knew how to do what needed doing without being told what needed doing all the time. Um, and so that was the uh, background into which you you, uh, st- you stuck around for a while, right, at the Pentagon um, under Bill Perry as well? And what yeah, were you... I was, a, I was a civil servant in the, in the um, office that was called Strategy and Requirements, so they did the big quadrennial review about American defense strategy and what forces you need for it. I wasn't involved in the bottom-up review that the Clinton administration did. I got there just afterwards, 
that I had taken the job because I wanted the chance to learn about how those things got done, how you connect grand strategy to what you spend your time and attention and your money on, and then what kind of forces you need for the challenges you've identified. I mean, and at the time, was most of the focus on the Balkans uh, at, at that point? And Absolutely. People... You're, you're a fine historian. Wow. Um, that was exactly <laughs> where they were. The decision about whether to go into the Balkans, the fraught nature as the last step between the United Nations and NATO, um, and the way that the NATO alliance was trying to redefine itself after the Cold War, and in some ways the United Nations was as well. Um, and then the, the military challenges associated with peacekeeping, which was not something the American military had done in a while. Um, and and um, so, yeah, it was an interesting time, a time where I felt like the skill set that I had was happily in demand by the problems that, that needed handling. So uh, it was really fun work. So what compelled you to go back to um, academia? You know, fundamentally, what I look like to myself is a school teacher. And I went to work in the joint staff before I had finished my Ph.D. dissertation. And so I wanted to get that done. Um, and I wanted to uh, go back to writing books and teaching students. Oh, and where did you go back to Stanford? I. I had a, a postdoc that, at UC San Diego that let me finish my PhD, and then I taught at the University of Maryland where I had done my graduate work, which like, it set, was so flattering and such a joy to have the privilege of teaching where I'd been a student. And I also taught at SIFE, the Johns Hopkins Graduate School. At Maryland, I taught defense policy courses, and at SIFE, I taught European policy. I guess at what point along this line did you start to uh, identify as a Republican? Because, you know, what you're describing now were all sort of civilian posts, or, or pardon me, uh, um, you know, sort of non-political posts, right? Um, and mm -hmm. you, you've worked in, you know, for, for uh, both H.W. Uh, Bush and then, and then Bill Clinton. When did you, you know, decide, okay, I am, I am a Republican? Because apparently, uh, I'm just kind of curious to hear the answer. Yeah, so what my sister would say is that I started out as a respectable leftist and have been trending conservative ever since I was 18. Okay. Um, and um, what the answer I would give is that in the late 1990s, I guess, I, I started to, for me, issues of... Um, of personal freedom and a freedom agenda matter came to matter more and more for me. I think a question that I have always um, been interested in intellectually and that comes out a lot in my academic work is about political culture and why some societies are vibrant and successful and others can never get the gear smashing. And in the case of the United States, um, who we are as a political culture thunders so loudly and inescapably in connection with our success um, that 
that that so, started to seem more and more important to me with time. So it didn't really um, involve sort of the, the specific decisions taken by, you know, Bill Clinton or George H.W. Bush? No. Yeah, no, um, it wasn't about, about political figures and politics. It was much more about political philosophy. Um, and so uh, in the 2000... How do you empower people to be successful? Uh, so in the 2000 elections, um, did you, uh, I guess, were you involved sort of a, a, in a political level in advising campaigns or, because um, I know you were I in the 2008 not. elections. I was not. What, in, uh, I guess, what inspired you then to get in, in, involved in sort of in the politics side of things, uh, which I take it, so was, was the 2008 elections your first sort of foray into, you know, advising a, a candidate? Yes, I worked in the Bush White House from 2002 to 2005, though. And what were your so what were your positions there? I when did you first enter? I was on the National Security Council staff, and I was the director for Defense Strategy and Requirements. And what pulled me to that job is after September 11th. You know, everyone who has expertise like mine had a fraught sense of the country's vulnerability and wanted to be helpful where we could. And I had the opportunity to go to work on the NSC staff on defense policy issues um, and, and enthusiastically took the opportunity. What were some of the specific issues? I mean, were you part of the debates on, on the you know, uh, Iraq uh, invasion? Or is it more uh, broader debates that you was, that you were involved in? I was not. I was much too cheap of help to have been uh, to have had my opinion matter on that decision. Although I did support it, um, but most of the work that I initially did on the NSC was about innovation. You know, do we have a military that is adapting fast enough to new challenges? Are they are they focused on a mindset that is less relevant? in light of these new challenges, or have they got the organic ability to do both? Um, are we funding the defense effort at the level it needs? Is there so much money that there's no incentive to, um, to adapt? You know, those kinds of questions. I, I love the green eyeshade, nuts and bolts. How do we make an organization perform well? And was this was sort of Rumsfeld's sort of big focus, right, at the time of, of I can't remember what, what was the term of art at the time of how, of like reforming. Transformation. That's right, the transformation, yeah. Yeah, it, was, it wasn't just Secretary Rumsfeld. The American defense community in the 1990s got very interested in areas of our technological, technological and intellectual dominance and how to capitalize on those to, to cement our advantages relative to potential threats. Um, so it was a really dynamic time in thinking about American defense policy. Um, so, you know, you said you were there, um, obviously not the one making the decision on, on invading uh, Iraq, but um, I guess subsequently... a lot of work on it. So um, I guess what... I'm sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry, just sort of like reflecting back on that decision. Um, do you have, uh, like, regrets is probably the wrong word, but um, what, um, how would you apply yes, what do. you know today about, okay, well, what, like, how do those, those regrets, like, manifest itself then? 
What do you wish you'd known or wish you did? Um, my basic philosophy is that people who don't have regrets aren't thinking carefully enough about their choices. <laughs> and there are a whole series of decisions that we made as an administration that I think can't be separated from how fearful people in the leadership were of a repeat of the experience of 9-11 and the sense of guilt that people in leadership positions had that they had let Americans down. And so there was a huge desire um, by senior people in the administration to better protect the United States. They really didn't want to have to go back to my mother and the rest of America and say, we knew Saddam Hussein has been a, he's been a threat since you know, the 1980s. We knew he had chemical weapons. He not only used them on an enemy, he used them on his own people. Um, we've had continuous military operations going on in two-thirds of this country for a decade. Um, we could have done more, and we didn't. And for me, that's what the, that was the defining mindset of the senior people in the administration in the run-up to the Iraq War. And so I actually um, am sympathetic to the choice they made. That is, the, the way the, the risk calculation changed radically after September 11th. I think that same administration with 15 years of time in between September 11th would have made a different set of choices. But in the immediate aftermath of September 11th, I think there was just, people were just not risk tolerant. They wanted to protect the country better. Um, well, yet in me, sending you know, hundreds of thousands, yeah. Oh, go for ahead. For me personally, I think the administration, I support the administration's judgment that preventative warfare may be in American interests in an age where we are concerned about nuclear proliferation and terrorist acts that can kill thousands and even more people in a single incident. So preventative warfare seems to me a reasonable judgment in some instances, but I deeply regret that both in in making the case for a preventative war and how we carried out the strategy or the conduct of the war subsequently. I think both of those things have delegitimized preventative warfare in, in an American context for 20 years. And I think that's too bad because it is in many instances still the right answer, but I don't think an American government will choose it because of the mistakes we made in the Bush administration. So I, I guess you're saying the error was more in execution, you know, things like the debathification or disbanding the Iraq army um, that made it much, much harder to huge occupy. But I also, those were certainly huge mistakes. But I think there were also mistakes in the run-up to the war um, in the information that we considered adequate to make the case. I guess, but the idea, though, that um, the U.S. sort of has, one, the ability, the capacity to, and also the, the obligation to, uh, like, invade and occupy a country halfway around the world is still something that you see as, as fundamentally uh, valid 
per, you know, with, with you know, circumstances, um, obviously, um, uh, suggesting one way or another whether or not in, in, in any particular case that's okay but the idea the fundamental idea that that that's that sort of part of that should ought to be part of u.s foreign policy is something that hadn't been discredited yes, i think wars are legitimate in many instances um so how so you were at the bush administration for you said uh, three or four years yeah from 2002 to 2005 and then i was homesick for being an academic again so I came uh-huh. to the Hoover Institution at Stanford, and I taught at West Point. I had the distinguished chair at West Point. Um, and then I went back into the administration to the policy planning staff, uh, where I worked for a terrific director, David Gordon, and I uh, had a lot of fun trying to think creatively about policies that the administration hadn't adopted but might, which is the work that policy planning does. Any particular policy stick out that, that you wanted to, um, that you wished had been adopted? Um, we did a lot of fun and creative work on Iran, and not so much about different kinds of U.S. government and Iranian government interaction as ways to try and force the Iranian government into conversations with its own public. Um, that I, I have always been struck by the powerful example of President Lincoln during the American Civil War with his letters to the working men of Manchester and other ways in which he reached into another country to affect the domestic political debate about America. And I think we have a lot of advantages, not least our immigrant connections um, to to use American foreign policy more creatively. And we did a lot of work about how to help Iranians get around government censorship, how to create opportunities for Iranians to demonstrate to their own political leadership what kind of candidates they wish had been permitted to stand for parliamentary elections and things like that, um, that I think were really interesting and uh, potentially important. And Jared Cohen, who's now at Google, did a lot of the early thinking on that, was really an inspiration to me. Um, so before I let you go, I do want to sort of hear the story about how you got connected with the McCain campaign. Um, so what was your, how, how did that happen? How did that come about? Uh, you know, I don't honestly know the answer to that because they reached out to me when I was at policy planning. Um, several of the people, um, Randy Schoeneman, Steve Began, who were working with the campaign, knew that I had very strong views about the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, that strong view being if our country is going to put young Americans in harm's way, we ought to actually to win the wars we're fighting and not continue them half-heartedly without winning them. Um, and That seems uh, like an idea McCain would heartily embrace, knowing what I know about his foreign policy <laughs> uh, predilections. Indeed. As yes. I said, um, we had a meeting of the minds on that. You know what I didn't expect and that I really value about my experience on the McCain campaign? Both John personally and Randy Shineman and other people who sailed on the pirate ship McCain, 
believe so fundamentally that you defend freedom at its ragged edge. That is that um, supporting the hard work of advancing freedom and representative government doesn't happen at the core of the free world. It happens in places like Iraq and Eastern Europe at the end of the Cold War and the Caucasus now, where you are dealing with imperfect partners and societies in transition that are making a lot of mistakes and that an important way in which we advance freedom is standing next to imperfect partners, helping them make better choices, protecting them in times of transition, um, and having the humility to remember that the American transition to being a liberal democracy was the work of 100 years. Um, and John really believes that, and the people he draws around him also really believe that. And I was myself much more focused on, on you know, being representative of American virtue. I think America be representative of its virtues than having us roll our sleeves up and help countries become more perfect themselves. Uh, well, thank you so much for, for speaking with me and for uh, your stories and for the book that I'm about to read uh, a year from now. <laughs> um, so, I'll send you a copy when it comes out, my friend. All right. Well, that was a fun conversation. It's definitely harder to talk to someone or to interview someone who you don't share fundamental assumptions about foreign policy with, but it was an interesting and fun exercise nonetheless, and I'll try to do more of it. Uh, and again, thank you all for listening. Uh, review the podcast on iTunes if you do like it. Uh, it helps increase the visibility of the podcast so others may see it and listen and find it as well. All right. Talk to you guys later. Thanks. Bye. Bye.